Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 188 with my guest, Hannah Hubbard. Hannah is uh, one half of the duo with her sister called Kodachrome Babies. Uh, We talk a bit about their music um, and just sort of their approach to making music during these quarantine times. But we also talk a little bit about rural politics and the anti-racism movement and sort of uh, her experiences with it in rural Ohio. So uh, I enjoyed talking with Hannah. It was nice to get to know her. Um, we sort of grew up in the, in the same town with the same friends, but never really crossed paths. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I certainly did. All right. Without further ado, this is Hannah Hubbard. Take care. Bye. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's gavel this to order. Uh, Hannah Hubbard. Nice to see you. Um, this is our first, is this our first time talking to each other ever? Yeah, I mean, other than just through like Facebook comments and, which, and that kind of thing, which I don't really, I like to wall those off as a separate, non understood. Yeah, I mean, that's my own personal, and I, I would love to chat with you about that stuff. But um, um, uh, you know, you we, I know you because you are, um, you're a Doverite. Yep. You are, uh, you know, I grew up uh, with your older sister, Kate. No, yep. sister, cousin, sister, sister, yeah, sister. Okay, just. You know, um, and uh, yeah, my brother was in school with Mallory, and you, I think, where do you fall? Are you older than Mallory? No. Uh, so I, my twin sister Rachel and I are the youngest of the four girls. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> but all I'm right. technically third in line because I'm older than Rachel by 17 minutes. So. Oh, all right. Well, I'm sure you don't <laughs> lord that over her head um, ever. Um, older and wiser, you know. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm really glad these podcasts, when I'm talking to somebody who, you know, I, it's not that we don't know each other and don't have anything in common, but I don't actually know you hardly at all. So I always love, these are always my favorite podcasts because I have no idea what we're going to get into. And I'm, if you're okay with that, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it. <laughs> um, I do have a couple things that like, you know, I, want, I would love to talk with you about Kodachrome Babies and uh, maybe play a little bit of that for folks who maybe don't know anything about about what you and your sister do. Um, but also just kind of want to, I have some, some things I've been thinking about as a former Doverite. Well, I'm, I consider myself still a Doverite, but once a Doverite, always do. I have some, I have some questions and, and concerns given the last five years of chaos that I would just love to chew some fat with you on. So, yeah. uh, and then wherever we go from there, if you have questions for me, if there's anything we get on a tangent on, it's all good. Cool. Um, okay. Well, first off, let's talk about the thing that is the is the thing that we have possibly the most in common, which is music. Um, and I'm I'm curious um, if we can maybe is it? Can you just tell me a little bit about your background first? Like what? Go back to baby Hannah. Pretend okay. I don't know anything about Dover and where you grew up. Yeah. And maybe t- tell me a little bit about what got you into music and working with your sister and and all that stuff. So, okay, baby Hannah, we, we grew up over actually in New Philadelphia uh, until, until I was in, no. right? I know, right? <laughs> Podcast but, over. Uh, <laughs> I was only uh, in school in, in the New Philly school district through first grade. Okay. So between the summer, between first and second grade, my family moved to Dover. Yay. Mm-hmm. And, um, but like growing up, I remember when we lived at that old house and these are vague memories because I was, you know, first grade or younger. Mm-hmm there was just always music playing in my house, you know, my parents. And to look back now as an adult, I feel like my parents had good taste in music, you know, just what they listened to. Oh, I mean, just like kind of classic rock and, um, you know, the, the things that were popular on the radio and those things that are kind of timeless. Um, 
I, I, I honestly, I can't even like specify because it was so many different things, mm, but just mm. like a well-rounded, like, you know, uh, music selection. And I, I, I always have this like memory of listening to, um, Annie Lennox version of walking in a winter wonderland, like around Christmas time, we'd Mm -hmm. always like be dancing to that in, in the living room in, in my old house. And so those are, uh, very good memories. And we always had a piano in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us, I can't remember if all the girls took piano lessons, but I, you know, I took piano lessons starting pretty young, um, just, just a couple of years and just kind of got that basic music foundation kind of going. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you go through elementary school, you play the recorders. And so, you know, that kind of so, thing. So you played recorder in elementary school? Uh, I think in fourth grade in our mm. music class, everybody got a recorder and we all learned how to play it. So I'm not a recorder expert by any. I, um, I managed to get through my, maybe that came in later in the Dover school systems, but I, I remember, I can't remember her name. Oh my God, this is awful. She was the music, <laughs> the general ed music ed teacher at, um, in the elementary school systems when I was going through in the eighties and nineties, um, it was a woman. She played an. <laughs> she played an auto harp. It was the the thing I remember about her. Cool. She had an auto harp and was would like sing songs. And I just thought it was like she just pressed a button and a different key came out. And I was like, <laughs> "What is this crazy magician?" <laughs> uh, but we never played recorder. I didn't actually play an instrument until I got to fifth grade. Well, so yeah, when I got to fifth grade, that's when they were like, "Hey, if you want to join band or orchestra, you know, here's here's all your options." And initially I had taken an interest in maybe playing the violin, like something about the violin seemed interesting, even though I'd never played it. I just kind of saw what was available to us. And I thought that might be cool. And somehow like in conversations with my parents, my mom convinced me, I think you want to play the cello instead of the violin. Like, I don't know why uh, she must've had an affinity for cello that I was unaware of, but she's like, I think that's what you want. I think you should play the larger and more expensive instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, she's the one suggesting it, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but so in fifth grade, I, I, started playing cello and I was taking lessons through the school, but I was the only kid in my elementary school to play cello. So it was kind of like having private lessons. Mm. Um, And back then it was Larry Gillespie was the orchestra teacher. So Mr. Gillespie and I would meet for, you know, whatever, half an hour, 40 minutes. uh, I don't even remember how many times a week, you know, but Mm -hmm. it was just like a private lesson. And so I really got a nice foundational education when I first started that stringed instrument. And I played cello from fifth grade beyond high school. I mean, it's been quite a few years since I've played one now. Mm -hmm. I'm actually though, I have a friend who is custom building a cello for me right now. So that's like, who's your your friend? uh, His his name's Jimmy Warner and he lives um, here in the Dover, New Philadelphia area. He started a company called Nautilus guitar company. He actually built a, at least one, if not more, uh, guitars for Adam Lax. Yep. Um, so Adam, A-T-O-M, Adam Lax? A-T-O-M Lax, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I got hooked up with Jimmy a few years back just for instrument repairs and things of that nature. And I just kind of floated the idea by him one day, like, would you ever consider building a cello? You know, I used to play, I've gotten away from it, but if I had one, I'd Mm -hmm. maybe get back into it. And so he's like, I think months away from being done with it. So I'm excited to see, you know, the final product and play again. When you say custom cello, what is like, I had a friend of mine, there's a guy who's reminds me of, of, of how you talk about Jimmy. His name's um, uh, Aaron Sanchez. He plays with a band, you know, the band Buchan Gase. 
V U K O. You will love them. I think okay. you should check them out. Um, they're a duo, and they Buke is a baritone ukulele, and Gase is a guitar bass. And Aaron sort of he built all the instruments for the original Blue Man Group, like oh. all of the weird like he he sort of like helped invent all those and build them. He has, cool. he has an organization called Polyphonic Workshop in um, Hudson, New York, in upstate New York. And oh wow, yeah, he builds all these like custom ukuleles out of like old sheet metal from a car, you know, and um, he built me a custom lap steel and I had him build a lap steel with a fretted bass string on it. So you could do bass lines. So like when you say custom cello, what's custom about it? Yeah, I, well, honestly, there's, (laughs) he's just never built one before. This is his first attempt at a cello. He's, he's built plenty of guitars, but this is obviously Mm -hmm. a different thing. And there's really nothing custom about it. He, you know, he looked up, he said it was very difficult to find the schematics to, to, you know, build this. I think people are very protective of that. Um, but he was able to get his hands on something. And so, yeah, uh, yeah no, nothing custom from my specifications, but just, um, a, a cello just for me, I guess is what I should say. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Well, you, yeah. you, so you play in your, in your, so when, so, so you graduated in what year? Uh, 2005 from high school from Dover. And then what did you do? Did you go study music after that? So no, um, actually I remember, you know, being like, um, maybe a junior in high school. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table with my parents and just like trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I went to college. Cause they were the, of the mindset, like, I don't care what you do, just go get a degree don't care what it's in, Mm. just go get a degree. They were very insistent that I go to college and get a degree. Mm -hmm. And logically, I think everybody thought, oh, you're going to go for music, right? And logically, I should have, but I I don't know. It felt like... I, I don't know why, but it, like it felt like making that my profession wasn't exactly what I wanted. I couldn't yeah. really pinpoint what I was feeling, but it, you know, I often talk about imposter syndrome and how I feel like for most of my mm-hmm. life, I've been a fake musician and just like pulled the wool over, over everybody's eyes and made them think I was this, you know, fantastic musician. But, you know, I actually never took a music theory class. So even to this day, like my, my understanding of music theory is really basic, <laughs> you know, like I, I've never studied it at length, mm-hmm. but I've been playing instruments my whole life. So it's this weird, like, I, I don't know, like I know music, but I don't know the theory all that well. well and so I feel fake, you know? Okay. Well, let me drill down on that a little bit. When you, uh, the imposter syndrome, I've had a, well, first of all, I don't, I want to sort of disavow you of this, this you don't have to carry that around with you because it's bullshit. And, uh, <laughs> hi, have we met? I'm definitely an <laughs> imposter. Like I, I am still like, I'm just a 41 year old version of the same kid that went into Joan Wenzel's steel band. And I still like, you know, I can, I know what the edges of those bass pans feel like when you carry them. I remember my lower back hurting and now I'm 41 and I'm just, I still have a room full of steel drums. I still think about this stuff. And I feel like, I honestly feel like the more music theory I'm in those sorts of things I'm taught about, the more of an imposter I feel like. Yeah. So, because I'm like, Oh my God, there's a good friend yeah. named Vic, Victor like- Provost. Who's an amazing steel drummer. He lives in, um, uh, he teaches at George Mason university and, oh. Every once in a while, he'll just text me and like, "Hey, try a diminished or a diminished chord over a B, you know, dimi- or an E major chord over top of a B flat major chord. If you have a diminished seven in the key of whatever, <laughs> I'm like, okay, and I'll plunk through it, and it sounds awesome. And I'm like, oh my god, I have to do that in all twelve keys now. Like, oh shit. Um, but like for you, what specifically do you feel like when you perform? Do you feel like you're? You said you're pulling the wool over people's eyes, and 
Like, what, what, what do you mean by that specifically? Um, okay, so as an example, possibly because of learning music in a very kind of, um, like, when you learn cello, or in my experience, like, learning cello, it was a very... I don't want to say rigid, but very structured kind of process of yeah. learning. And I never was taught or encouraged to, um, you know, do something off the cuff, make something up. I was always reading notes on a page and following those very on time, very specifically, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of encouragement to Im- improvise, you know? Mm-hmm. So the improvisation really started to make me feel inadequate when I started kind of transitioning into playing guitar. You know, I'd find myself in these um, settings of people, bunch of musicians hanging around jamming. And I was never good at jamming for two reasons. Never really had the improv and never had that music theory down enough where somebody could shout out a key and I know what to do, you know? So I always practiced something, got good at it and then performed it. But the improv part of things was so uncomfortable for me and it still is, you know, I'm still not comfortable sitting down in a circle of people and jamming, (laughs) but you know, I'm a little more willing to try now um, just because I've been doing it for so long, like I can kind of pick up, you know, but I I've been surrounded by so many amazing musicians in my time that like, I'd rather just sit back and watch them do it and be Mm. amazed by them than participate in it and make it sound bad. (laughs) You know, like I don't want to mess up the awesome sound. Yeah. I, I, I I empathize with a lot of what you're saying because um, I still have, you know, one of the guys in group, and so Jason Truding, he studied drum set with Steve Gadd from Paul Simon's band, um, and like had studied jazz at Eastman School, and really like is steeped in that, and in comes from a big improvisatory background, and he can read yeah. and knows theory and all that stuff too. But and and so I sort of have I, I've learned to sort of lean on my strengths and the things that I can do that nobody else in the group can do, and most of that revolves around steel drumming, and so like. But there's enough moments when I'm pushed into a scene where somebody says, okay, we're going to, let's do a five minute form um, and X, Y, and Z. Here's maybe, maybe a key. Maybe there's not even, nobody's going to specify. And like, I'd rather go on stage at Carnegie Hall and sight read music, which I've had to do before. I'd rather do that every day of my life than have to, to improvise and make stuff up. You know, I, it's weird, and I don't know why I have that. I still am trying to figure out why I, why I have well, that insecurity. Well, that's me. <laughs> but yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I, and I feel like I should be getting better at it as I get older. But I actually, I don't know. It's it's becoming a hill that I I want to climb less and less the older I get. Yeah. And I feel bad about that. Yeah, like I felt like I never put in the time when I had more time to mm-hmm. really hone that skill. And yeah, now it's like. I feel like, oh, it's too late for me to get good at that. I'm just going to stick with what I know and get better at that. You know, I've never, you know, I don't know if you know much about Valley Town, but, you know, that that was um, another band that I'm in slash was in, like we haven't played a gig in so long. Like we're not really active right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course not right now, but even before COVID hit, we, we hadn't played a gig in a while, but uh, Valley town was like a, a bluegrassy kind of um, upright bass, banjo, uh, guitar, mandolin. And um, you know, my, <clears throat> my bandmates would always 
try to push me to like do some lead work. I, I played guitar. Mm-hmm. I'm not a lead person. I'm a rhythm person. And I think again, like kind of going back to how I developed my musical knowledge playing cello, that's a much more rhythmic type of instrument in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. So mm-hmm. I think I just became so much more comfortable with, and I like to think that I'm um, very good at keeping tempo. So that is where I'm comfortable. And I, I've, here's where the fake musician part comes in. I've never been all that comfortable pushing myself to get better at the things I'm not good at. I'd rather Mm -hmm. stay in that comfortable bubble and just do that really well. And that's why I feel like I'm pulling the wool over everybody's eyes because uh, wouldn't a real musician push herself to get better at all of these things. And, you know, but I don't don't know the answer to that. All I know is that, um, you're only pulling the wool over people's eyes if you don't admit that you're pulling the wool over their eyes. Like, <laughs> like you're only they only people are only fooled if like people are people can see through bullshit really quick. I have I have found in in my experience dealing with audiences and whether you're at like a middle school in Brooklyn playing for a you know 1,200 fifth graders or you're playing you know at Lincoln Center fifth graders can see through whether or not you are believing in what you're doing or if you're making something up on the spot because you don't know what you're talking about. Even if they have no idea who John Cage or Steve Reich is, it's like, it doesn't matter. They right. they can tell that you're making stuff up. And so I've just stopped. It's part of why I started Concert Honesty on Facebook and then started doing a podcast is because I just got tired of pretending and I just, yeah. you know. Um, but this, why don't... I'm curious before we talk about Kodachrome Babies, if we should, if we could just listen to the. You sent me a clip. Um, yeah. Is it okay to pull that up? And For sure. Yeah. Let's. I, I don't know if you edit it it down at all because there's some like talking at the beginning and whatever. But I think I've got it queued up. Okay. Okay. Um, cool. But um, can you just introduce like uh, to talk, introduce yourself, uh, what we're going to see, and tell us a little bit about your sister first. Okay, so um, this is actually a video that my sister Mallory, who is the other half of Kodachrome Babies, uh, she and I put together for an event that was held back in November. Um, This was like the first thing we've done together as musicians since COVID hit. So this was Mm. our socially distanced video that we put together for this event that was uh, for Big Brothers Big Sisters of Northeast Ohio, and they Mm -hmm. aired it during um, this online fundraiser that they had. Um, So we were kind of like the virtual entertainment. So, uh, and this is actually a cover of Tom Petty's Won't Back Down. All right, let's take a, and you're playing guitar and your sister's playing ukulele, is that right? That's it, yep. All right, let's take a listen real quick.
know what I was thinking about um, while that was playing? I had this like a crazy deja vu. This is, I think you're, you might know this or your sister would maybe admit to it, but I think your sister and my brother dated for a second. In, oh yeah, no, they definitely in, did. Yeah. In, in <laughs> elementary school or something like that. I don't remember when, but. Yeah, it might've been like late middle school, early. I don't, yeah, that's a good question. I'm Whatever. Sure. And I don't want to, I certainly don't want to talk about that more than either Zach or Mallory wants us to, but, but I had this image. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. memory popping in my head of walking by them in school and seeing the two of them holding hands and me and my, and me just going like, oh, my brother and his girlfriend are such nerds. And just like, <laughs> and now she's like got way cooler tattoos and is a better musician than I am. I wish somebody at that point should have just been like, Hey bro, just, just wait. Um, well, one of the things I love about your, the, the two of you, and I know, and, and I should say that that clip is a very sort of uh, small, slice of what it is you all do and and um you won a was it a tiny desk thing what was it something you you got asked to do a couple years ago was it uh well it wasn't tiny desk (laughs) we we never was we we submitted some uh with some videos for tiny desk but that never happened um we've done some like (laughs) local um, TV kind of, you know, interview kinds of that. We, we haven't won anything. <laughs> I, okay. Um, we've never been rewarded with, with, uh, prizes or anything for our music. We, we just get cool gigs. Like we, um, uh, let's see in 2018. Yeah. The performing arts center at Kent state Tuscarawas, um, had, inv- they were doing this series of like, uh, I forget, it was called the come here series, like mm-hmm. come here, you know, mm-hmm. and it was kind of lesser known artists, um, but who are, you know, experience a certain level of uh, notoriety when they travel and, and they have their pockets of people, you know, mm-hmm. so they were bringing these lesser known artists to the performing arts center. And I had suggested, you know, I interact, I, I work at a local radio station. And so I interact with uh, a lot of the members, you know, who run organizations and stuff in the community. So I, I know the the general manager at the performing arts center. And I had suggested to him, I had seen this guy performing in DC, a one man band playing guitar. And like, you know, he had this suitcase um, rigged up with like different kinds of percuss- percussive things. And mm-hmm. he, he just, he was, I was blown away by him when I saw him in DC. And so when I heard about this come here series, I was like, Hey, general manager, you, you should ch- check this guy out. He's really good. And I think he'd be perfect for this series. So he looked into him and he brought him to the performing arts center. And so when he brought him, um, he had asked if the Kodachrome babies would be interested in opening for him. And I was awesome. like, uh, yeah. And up until that point, we'd, you know, we played at the performing arts center, like in the lobby before mm-hmm. shows, just as like pre-show entertainment for yeah. people who were coming to the venue, but we were up on stage, you know, in front of the whole audience. And it was, and it's funny because actually that clip you just showed, we were wearing these like sparkly tops <laughs> and Mallory and I really like to, you know, dress to a theme. Anytime mm-hmm. we play a gig, whether it's polka dots or plaid or stripes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and those sparkly tops are what we wore when we performed at the performing arts center that night. So that was kind of like a big deal for us. You know, we're still pretty, we're very localized, you know, mm-hmm. we, we rarely play outside of Tuscarawas County, um, so we have a, a nice local fan following, but we're not, you know, not super famous or anything like that. Um, it's well, mostly it. just kind of like a fun 
fun side job for us in a lot of ways. Well, give it time. You know, that's the only that's the difference between people who don't make it and people who do is it's usually the people who just keep plugging along and keep yeah. keep swinging. For you going to say something? Well, all I was going to say is, you know, I'm never really sure if I want music to be my full-time career, you know, mm-hmm. like I really love my job at the radio station and it's stable in ways that a traveling musician is not. Yeah. Um, and, most, and things honestly, are, most things are more stable than that. Right. <laughs> and, and just even, you know, there's a certain romantic appeal to the, the being on the road, but I feel like for me personally, that would wear thin pretty quickly. Mm. Um, I don't know that that's the lifestyle I want. And, and even though the, the thought of sharing your music with people who love it and getting paid to do it is very appealing. There's something about stability that is more appealing to me. And Mm. the fact that I can kind of do music as more of a passion, but also kind of a side job. Mm -hmm. I like that level of where I'm at, you know, maybe one day that'll change, but it's worked out really well for me up to this point. And it just suits my lifestyle right now. You know, I own a home, I've got pets. I don't really want to be traveling all over the place, but, um, well, that could change. No, I, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm glad that you feel that way because I I think I've always felt that way, and like I know for me going through my studies, and I think a little bit of it was sort of to prove to myself and to you know my mom and dad that I was doing the right thing with their money to go to school, <laughs> and yeah. um, and I wanted to represent Dover well, and so so you know going to Yale and then getting this job with So Percussion and getting to tour a little bit or a lot over the last 16 years, um, a lot, all, you know, I'm grateful for the exposure and getting to see a lot of great, pl- I've been to Russia twice and like seen places that I, that I, I don't regret at all. Oh yeah. But I, but most of my time, actually, if you just add it all up has been spent packing a suitcase, going through airport security, um, weighing my bags, like all this shit that I just hate. And then I'm away from my family after that, like the punishment for doing all that or the payoff is to also be away from my wife for, you know, 21 days at a time. And that does, there's a bit of a resentment that can build up over time. And so I, you know, if you, if and when Kodachrome gets to the point where you're touring, just, you know, make sure that you're watering that, that, that home, home front on a regular basis. Definitely. Well, and I feel like I'm the type of person, you know, a lot of people have to learn lessons themselves the hard way, but I feel like I can learn lessons from other people's experiences. Mm. So I've seen enough documentaries about musicians and how, yeah, they don't, they don't have much of a home life because they're always on the road or, or whatever, you know, whatever iteration it it takes. But um, I can, I just know me well enough. I, you know, I come from um, my mother is very much a homebody and I feel mm. like I've, uh, in, inherited uh, that to a, an extent. And that's not, I mean, I've traveled, I like traveling, but it's, I don't think I'd want to be doing it constantly, yeah. even if I am doing it for music. Yes, that sounds awesome. And, and to have that experience to reflect back on would be cool. I just don't think it's a lifestyle that I want, at least not at this point in time. I, I think it's a totally valid thing to think and to feel. I mean, the older I get, the more it costs to get me out of the house. Like, it's like, <laughs> yeah. you're going to have to, I'm sorry, like what you may have paid me 150 bucks 15 years ago, that price is different now. It's more, it's worth more to me to be home. Absolutely. So I mean, this is where, you know, the interesting thing about COVID is it was like kind of a Okay. Obviously lots of 
terrible things have happened, but there are these weird kind of silver linings that, you know, I personally have found and I, I know other people have found and it was a forced break for Uh, musicians everywhere, but especially the Kodachrome babies, we had gotten to the point, you know, we've been slowly over the last 10 or more years, more gigs, more gigs every summer, more gigs. Now we're playing two gigs every weekend. Now sometimes three gigs every weekend on top of working my full-time job and doing Mm. other volunteer work. So we, we were reaching this point where we were starting to be a lot more selective about the gigs we took and part, partly like it, you know, if we're getting paid, are we even getting paid our asking price? You know, so we were always very willing to work with people because, you know, we're playing at fundraisers and organizations and we know that some of these places don't have that much money. So we're always like willing to negotiate, but it got to the point where we were just playing so many gigs that it was hard. You're, you're starting to lose that enjoyment, you know, and that's exactly part of what feeds into that whole, I don't know if I'd want to make this my full-time job, you know, Um, but that forced break that, that COVID gave us, (laughs) now we're talking about what it's going to look like, what Kodachrome babies will look like on the other side of this, because Mallory was already kind of starting to experiment more with um, pedals and effects Mm. and things with her ukulele that we've just never played around with before and talking about you know we have like an album's worth of music just waiting to be recorded and we just have not started that process and Mm. COVID made that a lot harder and um, so I think once you know we we've barely hung out we had like one practice where she was sitting on the other side of the room and I was sitting on my side and we both had masks on, but what are we even practicing for? There's, there's no gigs, you know? Yeah. Um, so it sucks on the one hand. Cause I do miss just playing, if not gigs, just practicing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. We, we haven't done that other than this video that we just watched, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think on the other side of COVID we'll do fewer gigs, try to get another album recorded and maybe tweak the sound a little bit and just evolve it a little bit, which it's a perfect time to do that, you know? Yeah. Well, that's why I recommended the band Buke and Gaze. I think you would, um, they have a bunch of albums. There's one, I think it's called Houdini Crush, or that's one of the track. I can't remember. I'm terrible at remembering names. But <laughs> Send me the link after. Just Google Buke and Gaze, and they're like, they run, they do everything themselves. Aaron Sanchez uh, is, isn't the guy from Polyphonic Workshop plays like a kick drum but that also triggers all this stuff in ableton um aaron dyer the girl in the group she like plays like a kick drum sound but by putting her like tapping her foot on an old microphone that has like a bunch of stuff on it then having like tambour like a shoe that she built that has tambourine jangles like stabbed in the the sole (laughs) of the feet so when she steps it makes you know she's awesome and she's got a great voice and i think i think you would find it sort of this treasure trove of creativity um yeah yeah, one of the things about covid that that sort of blew is the collaborative back and forth that happens when you're rehearsing And, and um there's a there's a program called sound trap have you heard about this at all I don't think so, no. It's been really great. It's just an audio sort of, um, what are they called? Digital audio workstation, a DAW or whatever. Um, it's a website you can go to. And then it looks like a Logic session or um, like GarageBand or something. And you can just like, you upload your stuff and then you can invite people to it and they can upload their stuff. You can edit stuff and move stuff around. So like if you're making demos with somebody and you're not in the same room, it's really 
I mean, there's limits, but it's really great for just a really quick back and forth cool. with, with somebody. So if you're in a rut, um, look that up. Um, okay. you mentioned, you mentioned that you played, um, or that you played, that you work at WJER and this sort of leads me into, um, sort of some of the questions I sort of want to chew with you on. Um, some of the things I've noticed about like when you and, and Amy Smith, who I, you know, she was a senior and when I was, when I was a freshman in college. So I always like, I idolized Amy Smith. She played the tuba, like, you know, total badass. Um, and, uh, you know, she now runs that music, runs the radio station. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. She's the general manager. And, um, every once in a while I see you post stuff about like, of course, like the radio stations, especially in Dover are like, everybody listens to it, whether you're a Trump voter, whether you're a Bernie supporter, whether you're, you know, there's like WJER 1450 AM 1450 is the like voice of the Valley, the voice of the Valley. Um, (laughs) Can you tell me real quick, like what is your role there? What do you do at WJER on a daily basis? And then um, how has working at the radio station for better or worse, you know, given that you're sort of this focal point for the community, how has that, where has your head been at in the last sort of four or five years with all the, like the sort of societal chaos, the way people are talking and arguing with each other? Not that that's new by any means, but like right, yeah. for you, what is your so, role and how has that sort of been playing around in your head? So when I started at the radio station, um, 12 going on 13 years ago, oh, okay, awesome, crazy, crazy. Um, yeah, I was right out of college when I, when I, it was my college internship working at the radio okay. station. So I've just been there ever since. Um, I, Everybody kind of, most people start out working the front desk. So you answer the phones, you greet people when they come in. And that's Mm -hmm. just kind of how you get familiar with the organization. I did very well at the front desk because I'm a very organized, task-oriented person. I can multitask. And it was just such a fun job, like going in there and just being, you know, having your thumb on the pulse of what's happening in the county. And I was just talking with my boyfriend about how, I always thought that networking was a dirty word. Like Mm -hmm. it just sounded gross. Like going to networking events just seemed slimy, you know, like you're just meeting people to advance yourself. And I just didn't, I didn't jive with that, but I kind of developed a network of people all over the community just Mm -hmm. by sitting at that front desk and then coming into the radio station to talk about whatever their organization, what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it just developed very naturally. And so now, you know, having worked there for over a decade, I've got this, very localized network of people I can turn to for whatever, you know, whatever I'm working on. Oh, I know somebody over there. I can contact them. They can help, you know? Um, So I did that job for about 10 years, just doing the front desk thing. And then I unexpectedly and (laughs) total shock to me found myself divorced in 2018 and was not expecting it. And it changed my financial situation and so Amy Smith, you know, recognizing the position I was in, uh, came to me and asked if I might want to try doing sales at the radio station, selling ads on the radio. And I've always been not interested in doing that. I never saw myself as a salesperson. I saw the struggles that they had on a day-to-day basis, and it just didn't feel like it fit my personality. But kind of facing this new reality, I didn't feel like I had a lot of choice. And it was Mm -hmm. an option that was right in front of me Mm -hmm. that had the potential to bring in more income. So I was like, yep, sure, I'll try it. And so for the last, you know, since 2018, I've been doing (laughs) my old job plus sales. (laughs) You know, I just Mm -hmm. kind of took on this new role without totally um, leaving behind my old job. Uh, In more recent 
months and years, I, I've been pulling away more and more from that front desk position because I've got somebody else who helps me now out there and I've been shifting things over to her. Mm-hmm. So now I'm a, um, mostly a salesperson, but I still help out with a lot of the administrative stuff. And it's cool because even though, you know, everybody thinks when you work at a radio station, you're a DJ. <laughs> I'm not really a DJ, but I do live broadcasts commercials, uh, you know, that kind of production work. And I love that stuff. Mm. I think it's so fun. And so tying back to our previous conversation about improv, I was super duper nervous about doing live broadcasts when I first started. Mm. I'm sure a lot of people are when they first get started, but Mm. I, because of that whole, like, I don't know how to improv. I, this isn't, way outside of my comfort zone but with the guidance of you know the legendary bob scanlon who was the general manager there for 40 years and uh basically my godfather you know i've known him since i was he's my dad's best friend and i've known him since i was born so he really guided me in a lot he he taught me just about everything i know about radio but he was the one who taught me how to do live broadcasts now i've been doing them for years and i feel like it's a skill that i've really honed over the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. And what used to be super uncomfortable for me is just another day at the radio station. Now, you know, I've done it enough that it's, I, it's within my comfort zone now. Mm-hmm. And I actually really like interviewing people because it's not a scripted thing. Most of, most of the time people say, well, what are you going to ask me? And I say, I don't know. It just depends on where the conversation goes. You know, I'm, I, I take a genuine interest in what they're saying and let that guide my conversation, you yeah. know? So interviewing has become a, a skill that I've developed from working at the radio station. That's awesome. I, I hate the word interview when people ask me like, <laughs> Oh, like, what are you going to ask me in my interview? I'm like, well, that presumes a, that I know everything. I mean, when you listen to like yeah. t- Terry gross or, um, who's the guy, James Lipton from the inside the actor studio. Like those were the first, like I loved listening to James Lipton and he would just have that stack of note cards and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, it's clear that he knows who he's talking to and has like really is just guiding this to, to reveal a lot of stuff that maybe he already knows. I mean, some of those questions are like, if you were a kitchen utensil, but you had an animal voice, what would it be? You know, like those sorts of things. Like, wow, I don't know. Like a fork with a cat. I don't ask a lot of those questions. Yeah. Like that's not my vibe either. But, um, Terry Gross had a really great piece of advice. She said, if you, if you're ever scared about, starting a conversation just saying the, the words tell me about yourself yeah are like and then just keep asking them say like why do you feel that way why do you think about yep. that like those those words like you don't even have to really listen just if you just muted yourself <laughs> and they came back 30 seconds later and like why did you think that like yeah. <laughs> you're actually probably going to be close enough to things to, to get through it but and just and never ask a yes or no question yeah that's yes i mean yeah. okay well let me let me ask you you so where has what's been the hardest part about do I mean one of the things that I love about doing a podcast is that you know I, I get to talk to a wide array of people um, with a wide array of political ideologies, backgrounds, where they live, where they haven't lived, all of those things. And you know, there's moments when I step in it or I say the wrong thing, and I have to sort of like work back and like figure things out. Like for you, what has been the hardest part about doing the, you know, enjoying it is great, but I'm sure you've had some bad days. Like what, what for you has been the moment where you just like, Oh, I messed that up. I got to figure out what's the hardest part for you. (laughs) Well, you know, like I said, I was super uncomfortable stepping into the role of a salesperson, but 
again, just felt like I didn't, I needed to at least try. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, stepping into that role, it was a dream job. I never dreaded going to work. I looked forward to the work that was waiting for me. There were challenging days, but like nothing compared to somebody else's bad day, you know, Mm -hmm. after I started sales, now you're dealing with sometimes angry clients, uh, you know, that, that kind of, I was always kind of shielded from that stuff because I wasn't in sales. You'd get an angry listener or something every once in a while, but that, you know, whatever, uh, anger was being directed at me was mis- misdirected at me, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I wasn't the source of their anger, but now part of what made me so uncomfortable going into sales is like, I'm not somebody who worships money. And I know that a lot of people, are like understandably very protective of their money. And so my fear was always, what if I mess up accidentally, of course, you know, and somebody gets really mad because they're spending their money and trusting me to deliver a product. And, you know, Bob Scanlon would say, it's nothing that can't be fixed. You know, Mm -hmm. this is not brain surgery. You know, we can make it up to them, but as long as you're doing what you know is right and, and, you know, mistakes happen. So that made it a little easier, but it wasn't all that a few months or two ago where I really had one of my first kind of, Ooh, I gotta, you know, make this right. Like I, I, I did mess up. It was my mm-hmm. fault, but it was an accident, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I had an angry client. And so I was trying to keep, keep a bridge there, not let things fall apart. Mm-hmm. And, and it was hard, but because of everything that's happened over the last few years, I've learned not to be afraid, you know, Mm. like these are just people and remembering that every mistake can be remedied, you know, again, not brain surgery, but being, you know, standing up and, and admitting, I've never had a problem admitting when I made a mistake. You know, my, my dad really taught me like, when you make a mistake, you own up to it. Mm. So that's never been a problem for me, but you know, tempering somebody's anger when that mistake affects them. It's difficult, (laughs) but it can be done and you can't run away from it, you know? So I've learned to kind of face the challenging things head on and just be honest. You know, I, I know in my heart that I'm, I'm doing what needs to be done and and I'm following, you know, an honest path. And so Mm -hmm. um, if somebody's going to, you know, be mad at me for the rest of their life for some reason. I tried, you know, There's so. Only so much control you have over. Yeah. Over yeah. That. Well, let me, um, I want to ask you just because remind me how, how old are you? Uh, I am 30. What year is this? Yeah. 33. 33. Okay. I'm just, um, I I'm 41. Sorry. It took me a second. I'm 41. No, I'm 34. Yeah. Sorry. No. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're only like seven, eight years apart from each other, but yeah. I'm, I haven't, I don't, I don't know how to phrase this question. Okay. It's more of a complaint. And then there's a question, not of <laughs> okay. you, not the complaint's not about you, but, but so I remember very clearly doing an interview when I, um, got into Yale. Uh, I was still finishing my undergrad at Akron and my mom had me come in and substitute teach for her at Strasburg high school. Cause she had to do something. And I had just got my ed degree. And so like, Yes, it was a conflict of interest, but this was 2003 or whatever, so it wasn't that big of a deal. So I came in and I taught the class about steel drums, and um, and I did that a couple times throughout the year. And then the Times reporter came and wanted to interview me, 
and they wanted to interview me about a new concept called the brain drain. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> you know, tell me this was like, again, like this is pre YouTube, pre all of, oh, yeah. pre, I mean, not pre the internet, but the internet wasn't something I thought I checked my email once a week, you know? Yeah. Um, so he started interviewing me. He's just like, what do you think are the, con- like, what concerns do you have about students? Cause at that time it's like, I was graduating going off. Krista Bush was going to Notre Dame. Like all of my colleagues were all like, poof, like going elsewhere, you know? And he, he's like, what do you, what are your concerns about that? And I was like, what do you mean my concerns? Like <laughs> you all, like I play steel drums and I study music at Akron, went to Trinidad. I did all that stuff because Joan Wenzel taught me how to play steel drums and because I was trained by this program that was funded by tax dollars, all of those things, like, were you concerned? (laughs) What were, are you concerned with what I'm going to do with that education? And I just said, like, I'm proud of my school system for having arming, having armed me with a lot of this, you know, just knowledge. And at the time I wasn't, you know, not that racism wasn't an issue at all, but like, it wasn't in the air in the way it is now. And I wasn't aware at the time that I was being taught about other cultures and and people with skin color different than mine. The first black person ever met was Cliff Alexis at the university or at Dover high school. And um, he showed me two scars on his head from a cop that beat him when he was a kid playing steel drums in Trinidad, you know? And anyway, so fast forward, I, I move, I actually moved to Yale and I start, one of the first comments I get from somebody when I, when they ask where I'm from, I said, I'm from Dover, Ohio. And they're like, where's that? And I was like, Oh, it's this little town right next to Amish country, South of Akron. And they're like, Oh, flyover country. And I was like, I, I was like, what is that? I had, again, like I'd never heard that term. And he's like, Oh, that's the place that you fly over to get to the good places. And like, that's the first time I ever heard the term knuckle draggers. First time I ever heard backwards or backwater or deliverance used in a term that wasn't about the movie. It was a derogatory term. And I'm like, well, you know, I understand why you think that, but, and then I would say, look, well, I'm from there. And they're like, well, you're different, you know? And I'm like, okay, hold up a second. And now that I'm 41, I think I would have answered that guy who was interviewing me about the brain drain. I would have said that I think my concerns are that the place I'm moving from is not going to understand why. And the place I'm moving to is not going to understand why. That's a good answer. (laughs) And I think right now I'm starting to feel a little bit vindicated by the way society, I mean, like, no, I'm not right, but I feel like I have, I feel better about the way I feel because it's like, I'm right. Neither side's understanding each other. And like, I go home and I'm called an elitist. I'm from the elite institutions of Yale. I teach at Princeton and NYU. So I am now this like other thing. And then I, I'm there and I'm still the backwards guy because, you know, for instance, like the language around anti-racism, I'm, I'm on board with where we're all pointed. I get it. There's, I work in black communities on a regular basis the conversations happening there are not all there's very, there's the overlap actually is very small. And I feel like there's a lot of people talking past each other. And then I sort of, there's like this, because I don't want to participate in those conversations, the way they're being had. I'm now labeled as the knuckle dragger in a weird way, or there's some implication that I'm not with the party. And I'm like, bro, I, wait a minute. They taught me since I was 17 to care about black people. And I understand I'm not doing it the way you want me to do it. But so, 
that's my irrational complaint. But I'm curious for you, does what I'm saying, how does that resonate with what you're saying and sort of what you're living and experiencing in Dover on a day-to-day basis? Like how, how has your head thought about this stuff? Yeah. I mean, I, I totally understand what you're saying and, and, you know, I, back in, uh, let's see, May, when George Floyd was murdered, mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard, but there was a significant protest in downtown Philly with mm. hundreds of people. And I remember when that happened, I thought to myself, I'm going down to the courthouse and I'm going to hold a Black Lives Matter sign, even if I'm the only one. Then I started to hear some talk of like this protest. And I was like, oh, I guess other people are going to be there, too. So I'll go. So my boyfriend and I were driving to downtown Philly on that day that it was supposed to be held. And as we approached downtown, there were hundreds of people. And my first thought was, oh, there's a lot of counter protesters here to, you Mm -hmm. know, shout for Trump and whatever. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the case. You know, we parked and we got out and we started walking around. Every corner of downtown, the square in downtown Philly was packed with people, mostly standing silently with signs. And I I didn't see the only counter protests were mostly like people in cars driving by. So Mm. just the visual impact of seeing all these people who came out for this made me realize there are a lot more people in our, in this community that I've always viewed as mm, conservative Mm. to put it mildly, you know, and always felt like I was an outsider and Mm. yeah, people like you and other people I found. Yeah. We, we found each other, but we're like it, you know, (laughs) like there's nobody else out here like Mm. us. But when I saw that, I was like, okay, there's a lot more out there than I ever realized. And so not long after that happened, another girl who's a graduate of Tuskegee Valley put together a group on Facebook called the Citizens for Racial Justice, Mm -hmm. Tuscross County, Mm -hmm. and just kind of was like, you know, I saw all these people and I felt like we needed to harness that energy and that people power to carry this movement forward in our community. And I was like, yep, I'm in that group. And so as from the first zoom meeting that they had, I've been at every one of them. And, you know, it's, it's pretty much like me and four to five other women who meet regularly via zoom, but we have this group with 300 plus members in it for Tuscross County. And, and um, so yeah, you're not, (laughs) I came to a point where I finally realized, you know, once I kind of realized like silence is violence in a, in a sense, like every time somebody would, I'd be talking to somebody at the radio station and they would very casually say something that was pretty racist. uh, Old Hannah would have been like, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay. Yeah. You know, new Hannah's like, I disagree with you. I, I don't think that's right. You know, I finally realized that, everybody feels perfectly comfortable saying their point of view. Why do I feel like I have Mm. to hide my point of view? Because I was always the person who wanted comfort. Everybody's cool. No tension. Mm. Even if that meant letting a racist comment slide or not calling it out or whatever. And after May and everything, summer and everything, it was funny because there was one day right after that protest, um, you know, we always have a staff meeting at the radio station and my, my coworker who works in the news department 
had been at the protest kind of covering it for the news department. Mm -hmm. And he said something about, yeah, and station activist Hannah over here, she was there, you know, and I'd never been referred to as an activist before. And I never thought of myself as an activist because I really wasn't, you know, I was somebody who was not racist, but I wasn't fighting racism and I wasn't taking active steps to even promote the cause or anything like that until May and, and everything that ensued. So hearing him call me that made me realize that other people were seeing me as that. And I was okay with it. I leaned into it from there on out. And it even led to, um, you know, there's the Ohio Association of Broadcasters, and that includes television and, and radio stations and any broadcasting uh, entities. Mm-hmm. And the radio station is a member of this organization, and they were putting together a diversity, equity, and inclusion board mm-hmm. to address these issues. So Amy Smith said, hey, I got the perfect girl to join your board. So now I'm on this statewide board that's made up of like eight people. And I feel like I can bring that small town perspective because these are people in Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, Mm -hmm. like big cities. And what I keep telling them is your challenges are very different from our challenges here in small town, Ohio. We're you're at the point where people know there's a problem and you're trying to do something about it. We're still trying to get people to even admit there's a problem here in our small town. So our challenge is we're like behind, you know, and Mm. and that's probably not a surprise really when you think of just urban versus rural and that kind of thing. Like we're just, so, so many of us are, are so far behind in this whole thing and myself included, but I think I'm, you know, a little more woke than a lot of the people in the community, but I've got a lot to learn myself, but trying to pass along that knowledge of what I'm learning to people who don't want to hear it is a challenge. And I haven't figured it out yet, but this, you yeah. know, this citizens for racial justice, we're, we're coming up with ideas and, well, committed what, to being active about it. It's interesting as you're as you're talking about people that don't want to hear it. How do you can you know? How do you again? Like you're you're now in sales. You're selling something to somebody. Yeah. Like so, if you were going to do an ad read for anti-racism, <laughs> like yeah, what would what would the ad read be for anti-racism? How do you convince somebody? I don't know. Like I I, I think about myself. Like I think of the moments like Cliff. Cliff Alexis, and again, I, this is anecdotal, so take it for what it's worth. And it's, yeah. you know, I may have just been hoodwinked, but I remember meeting Cliff Alexis. Well, I went to Trinidad and, and well, I met Cliff in high school, and then he came to the University of Akron, and I was in charge of driving him around because I knew him when I was in high school. And so I would take yeah. him to him from the airport in his hotel, picked him up at the airport. He gets in my car and he starts talking with his Trini accent that I can barely understand. And He's like, go here, turn here, turn here. Next thing I know, we're in the like the darkest place in Akron, Ohio, that you can go in like the neighborhood I never even knew existed. You know, as yeah. a nineteen year old kid, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And he, we go to a black barber shop, and he can't get his hair cut in DeKalb, Illinois, which is at that time, you know, was just a cornfield. And he's like, I can't get my hair cut there. I have to come here. <laughs> and so he, he's like, come. And I was like, why? And I said, why do you have to get your hair cut at a different place? Like, I just didn't have any idea that, that African-American hair was different than yeah. my hair. And yeah. and he just said, well, come and check it out. I was like, okay. And he, he, we walked into Black Barber Top, but he says, sit here and don't move. And I was like, okay. And two <laughs> hours go by, and I'm just sitting in this Black Barber Shop, like, not saying anything. 
he gets his haircut for about 15 minutes of those two hours. And the rest of it is just them bullshitting and talking about the news and about the local gossip and, you know, whatever. And I was allowed to have the time to just quietly digest what was happening. No one was, no one even acknowledged me when I was in there and nobody asked if I wanted my haircut. Like it wasn't a thing. And then Cliff's like, okay, let's go. And I left and he never said anything about it, but I was able to sit there and be like, Oh, that's what this place is. This is a safe place for Cliff. He feels like he's understood. He feels like everybody in here has had a similar struggle to some degree. Um, and then going to Trinidad, same deal, like three weeks in Trinidad, two of those weeks, no one said anything to me. It was just like, I, it was, and I was like, Oh yeah, I'm in a barbershop. I just have to keep my mouth shut and just do my job. And so then a guy taps me on the shoulder and he's wearing full army fatigues with like the black power beret and everything. And uh black Panther, excuse me. And, He's like, thank you for your work. You're doing a great job. And I was like, what does your beret mean? You know, like, <laughs> like again, like the most, uh, you know, naive question I can possibly ask. And so he's just very calmly explains to me the history of the Black Panther movement in Trinidad um, in the 60s and 70s and, and was just telling me all these stories. And I just, I feel like now, I guess I should say, I'm really glad I had those two experiences. I think if I was 19 year old Josh trying to learn about another culture right now, there's enough sort of fear in the air of saying the wrong thing. Like if I said right now, I got on Facebook and said, why do black people have to get their hair cut elsewhere? <laughs> there's enough, mostly from white people though, not from black people. Like, right? like, yeah. yeah. And so like, I guess I want to ask you like, why do I fear white people more than I fear black people right now? I have I have, I, again, like I work with, I don't know. I just interface enough with people of, of color who have strong thoughts about stuff. And I never worry about me asking them questions. Hmm. I only worry about asking my white friends questions. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious if that, if I'm just like, if I need to move to a different town or take a different job or, or what am I missing? Well, I mean, I'm not an expert, so I don't know that I could necessarily give you an answer, but our, our, Citizens for Racial Justice group is currently reading this book. Mm -hmm. So you want to talk about race. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm only not even quite halfway through it yet, but it talks about all of this stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. what if I talk about race wrong? You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, how do I talk about race as a white person? So, like I said, I'm kind of just learning this stuff, too. And, you know, I think from my perspective, you know, I became aware of the problem, the, the, the problem of what we're the enormity of the problem that we're facing mm-hmm. in 2016, when Philando Castile was murdered, mm-hmm. um, I'd been hearing kind of similar stories for a while. And just, it wasn't, it wasn't resonating that this was a systemic problem until I saw that he was for shot. Reason, he was shot in his car, uh, said he was, he had a gun, and like it was legal, like told the cop every. Am I, am I remembering the correct story here? I mean, yeah, yeah. Sadly, and there's... his girlfriend and her four year old were in the back seat, and yeah, yeah, it was awful. And and like you know, I'd seen similar types of incidences, but like that must have been the straw that broke the camel's back for me. It mm. was like the final piece of evidence I needed to be like, holy shit, this is definitely a problem. Like no question, this is a problem and a systemic problem, not bad apples problem, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was when it resonated with me, but it took another four years 
till George Floyd for me to like be moved to action. You know, mm-hmm. I continued to learn slowly over those four years. And now I'm trying to accelerate that learning because I feel like every minute I'm not trying to help is a minute lost, you know, in, in this cause. And, um, I forget what your original question was now, but <laughs> I just, I, I was just, I was only ex- again, like this is my own personal bullshit. And I'm just like, just why I started a podcast is I just want people to help me through my bullshit. So I apologize. Yeah. Hannah. It, it's just a general, like the conversation right now, again, when we like, I, to me, it ties into the brain drain or story I told earlier of like, there's a disconnect, I think, between rural rural and oh, urban yeah. America, where yeah. no matter who you talk to, the other person's wrong. And I, yes. I fundamentally dis, disown that premise for any conversation. And so for me, empathy and understanding is the key. Like, I, you know, I, I was thinking about this last night. I am who I am and think what I think because of every person I've bumped into, yeah. every experience I've had every good and bad experience I've had makes me why I think the way I think. So I have to also afford that same possibility to Donald Trump. I don't have to like him or approve the way he deals with things, but I can't pretend like he thought of this on his own. He's a product of a father who told him horrifying stuff his whole life. And if I was raised in that same household, I would like to think that I'm not any better of a person that I've, I was just influenced by Joan Wenzel and my mom and dad and Zach and, you know, Larry Gillespie. I never studied with him, but I saw him sitting in his office quietly for four years, never said a word to me, you know, like (laughs) that meant that affected me. And so I, I guess for me, I'm just, I'm curious how we bridge this conversation to where folks can at least understand that we're all products of the same process, you know, but we just got to different results. This might be a little bit of a tangent, but I I think, and I'm sure there's people who would disagree with me, but like, I view Trumpism as a Trump cult. I'm not the only one, but like, and I don't know if you've ever read much about Leah Remini, the actress and her Scientology. Scientology. So I've read her book, Mm -hmm. I've watched her show, and now I'm listening to her podcast. And it, it is remarkable how often I think, my God, that sounds just like people who worship Trump. You know, they just, they're in a cult. They sever relationships with their mm-hmm. family to continue to worship a false prophet. They, you know, go directly against the things they claim to be in favor of in support of that thing. But it's like, they don't see the hypocrisy or they don't see what they're doing or supporting as wrong because it benefits the profit or whatever. And right. Holding a blue lives matter, the thin blue line flag for four years and just like beating the left with it. And then seeing them drag cops out of the Capitol last week and bludgeon one to death. Like I'm sort of like, okay, if we can't call that hypocrisy, I don't know what we're, what we call. And to me, the one thing I keep repeating, and I've been saying this since probably 2015 and it's not earth shattering, but words are so important. The, the phrases we use, the, the names we give organizations. Now, I'm not saying that like Black Lives Matter should have named itself something else, but look at how they twist that to mean only Black Lives Matter when the or, intent is Black Lives Matter too. So would we have saved pol- ourselves or would we have saved police. ourselves grief yeah. if we'd have just named it Black Lives Matter too? Probably not. 
but that whole argument would have been out the window. So just, you know, I don't, I don't like to harp on it too much, but when I was, you know, still married to my ex towards the end, we just weren't seeing eye to eye on these very basic things Mm -hmm. that I thought forever we had agreed on. And I remember having more than one conversation about the word feminism and what that actually means. And I was like, you don't agree with feminism? Like, really? (laughs) You know, like there was this perception, even though he was a smart guy who knew what that meant, it to him felt like an attack on being a man, you know, and no matter what I said to, to defend feminism, he couldn't get past that. And so, now, if we called feminism something else, would he still have a problem with it? I don't know. Maybe not. But like just yeah. words we use, the phrases, and like here we are a week and a half after an insurrection that was incited with words. It's words, you know, <laughs> like it's just words, but they matter. And you know, yeah. St- yeah. I mean, I think, you know, stop the steal, make America great again. Um, but I would also say people to agree on what words mean, right. you know, what, would... what does socialism mean? What does communism mean? What does patriot mean? You know, like all these words that I feel like I'm still abiding by the old definition and somewhere along mm-hmm. the way, the right coined everything with a new like the words are the same, but the meaning is different. And right. I missed that memo. And now we're talking about these things from two different perspectives mm-hmm. and they don't see why I'm confused. And I don't see how they can phrase things this way. You so know strange. what I mean? I, mean, so. I feel like Pete, Pete Buttigieg did. I feel like one of the, of, of the entire election cycle from when the primaries started getting kicked up in whatever, 2018 or 17 or whatever, or it feels like it just started again for the next yeah. cycle. Um, he gave a speech, I think, when Mike Pence gave – he said something – Mike Pence quoted scripture in one of – and I think it was about the children at the border being – the separate family separation policy they were starting to yeah. really go hard in the paint on. And Buttigieg came out and gave this speech that I felt like to me was the first like like – weed through the cement in the same way that I felt about Obama's speech at the DNC convention in 2006 or five, where I was like, Oh, like Obama, like he was one of the first politicians to be like, you don't get to say red state and blue state. You don't get to say that it's ours. It's all of ours. And Pete Buttigieg is like, I'm sorry. I go to church with my husband. And if you got a problem with that, take it up with your creator, not me. You don't have an, and he's like, Oh, and by the way, I'm a war veteran. You don't have the monopoly over the United States flag right. either. And I felt like, okay, this is a gay mayor from South Bend, Indiana, who's a little short, kind of looks like the the character from the Mad Magazines, you know, like, but, but, you know, if Obama could get a, I don't know. I just had a, there, Pete Buttigieg to me really. And, and again, like that was the first time I was talking to my mom. She's like, I kind of like him. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute what <laughs> like i know I the political conversations we've had and so i was like okay there's some way in the way pete Buttigieg delivered that statement where he was able to get through to family members to friends of mine in a way that i never could yeah and how, do, how do i do that you know like what do i need to do better I guess you have to ask Pete Buttigieg because, you know, I think anybody only has their perspective, right? So if you can frame something, I I remember listening to a podcast once talking about 
kind of this exact thing where you're trying to convince somebody who holds, holds a totally different ideology of your perspective, but you are arguing from your perspective. But what you need to do is argue from their perspective. So if we're talking about, I think one of the examples they give is like, um, gay people in the military, you know, if, if you're on the right and that is a problem for you, try to appeal to them through patriotism and pride for your country and sacrifice rather than they're just humans who deserve the same rights as us. You know, like we always argue from that emotional Mm -hmm. human perspective, but they're, you know, they're, they're coming at it from this pride for your country perspective. And if you try to argue it that way, you might convince them a little easier of your viewpoint, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, just appealing to where a person is, you know? And so this is where, you know, when you're faced with uh, somebody who you view clearly as racist, but who does not see themselves as a racist, you know, I I feel like personally where I am in this whole fight, you know, I could share a video of a student, spouting off horrible racist things, but that's obviously racist. You know, my, I'm trying to, what, what opened my eyes with Philando Castile and what now I'm trying to open other people's eyes to is the systemic racism that allows that, you know, Mm -hmm. he's not an outlier in his rant. You know, this is not an uncommon thing, um, but it is perpetuated by the, the, system that is in place. And so trying to get people, you know, that's what this book is really helping me kind of like frame some of these arguments. Like I'm just now trying to like get good at it, but you know, whereas before I'd be like, that is racist. Now I'm going to be like, that is racist because the system has this in place, which leads to this and just take that blame kind of out of it. Like, I'm not calling you a racist. We all participate in this system that is inherently racist. So I'm as guilty of it as anybody, but that's why I'm trying to change the system. And I hope you'll come along with me, you know? Mm -hmm. So appeal to them being your ally, your future ally, and you're not to blame, but like we all need to take ownership of this collectively and change it. It's interesting. I mean, I, 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 I like that the way you're framing at least your, your argument here, I'm, I'm not like advocating for you to change or do anything with your argument. I think it's great, but um, I feel like you're able to sort of sidestep the, to me, the thing that scares me about the, like, you know, the left and the way we're talking about things. And I consider myself, if I were to label myself, I'm curious what other people would label me politically. <laughs> um, maybe you could, maybe you could tell me what your, your gut says, but well, what, where do you think I lie politically? I'm actually kind of curious. Um, you seem like, um, com- comfortably left, <laughs> like not, not extreme left and not, super centrist but i don't know <laughs> comfortably left yeah i think if i had a gun held to my head i'm definitely on the democratic side of things like yeah, yeah but i also like i have i i bristle sometimes at the arguments that come from the left because i oh, sure. i feel like it's not you're like you're not being very good salespeople. like try to work a hair harder at selling me and i because there's a like when you come at it from feelings all the time which are not inappropriate they're not inappropriate to have, and you're right. You have a right to them, but there mm-hmm. can that can very quickly turn into religiosity about your viewpoint. Where yeah. you oh you don't understand it. Sorry, you just got to give yourself time until you do. It's like well wait yeah. a minute. That's kind of a like oh you don't believe in Christ. Well, just someday you'll come to Jesus, and if you don't, yeah. sorry you're going to hell. And it's like well, 
Okay. <laughs> I, that, when has that ever worked with religion? You know, right. and I, you mentioned a podcast. Um, the, the Leah Remini one is good just for anybody who's listening, but there's a really great one. I think it's with, I think Joe Rogan had her on, but I think Sam Harris has as well. Her name's Megan Phelps Roper. And she was, her dad, I think, founded the Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah. And she ended up, like, I think she, the way she got out of it was some Twitter rant that she gave. She went on something about about gay people going to hell if they die, you know, and she would protest gay funerals, you know. I think my boyfriend was just listening to this podcast. It's really great. And she talks a lot about, like, trying to understand, like, why somebody is so fervent about, um, you know, abortion. Like, why somebody, like, okay, well, just picture that there's a building somewhere in your town where babies are being murdered. And for you, you've been told your whole life, not, or you've been told your whole life that that's murdering a child. You can't just call that person crazy. They believe that. They genuinely yeah. feel like there's living beings being snuffed out. Right. And I have that same feeling when I watch Auschwitz documentaries. I have yeah. that same horror of, like, I can't believe that we let humanity go this route. Yes. How the, and then you see, and, and it's like, I have to empathize that somebody else could have that same feeling and then try to figure that. And she does her, she does it way better than I do. She talks a lot <laughs> about how to do it, how she did it, how not to do it, like how to, how to do it in a way where you sort of then lose family members for decades. Yeah. Um, it's really, really great. So if you haven't checked it out, I really recommend yeah, that it. Um, awesome. Yeah. It's uh, really great. Here's my dog. So I'll say hi to, this is Hendrix the dog. Yeah. What kind of dog and, is Hendrix? Well, he's a border collie. Oh, nice. And he has his, his new favorite toy. So, um, you have dogs or dog? From work, so this is my boyfriend. Hey. He's going to work. How you doing, sir? What's... Cool. Awesome. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I just have to say, are you right now? Yeah, Mark? we're doing a podcast right now. That's all right. <laughs> do what you no, got to no. do. I made my first sale today as a John Deere salesman. <laughs> yeah, what'd you sell? I sold a twenty-five horsepower tractor with a front-end loader and a mower. Awesome. So, I'm excited and about that, well, and I'm about to go do some consult, some farm consulting. Well, congratulations, for, uh, CBD grow potentially. So, so yeah, he's he's a, a farmer by by trade, and um, we you should see the garden we have in the summertime in the backyard. It's pretty awesome. Did you say you're growing CBD? Yeah, um, our farm has a license uh, to grow CBD. We did it last year, and then I have a gentleman that I know. Um, a friend who's trying to get into it and he asked me to look at his property. So that's what I'm going to go well, do right let now. Let me know when DeWine and everybody gets off their butts and you can start growing that THC, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you know, that's uh that's a whole other issue. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> we're surrounded. We're surrounded by it at this point. So why wait around? Yeah. You know? it's, uh, it's good. Well, nice Anyways, to see you. It's very nice meeting you. Sorry. <laughs> nice I interrupt you. your podcast. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks for the update. Totally fine, <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Um, well, um, well, let me let me just um, uh, wrap up here in in sort of t- Hannah. This has been. I really appreciate your time here, and I really um, I don't remember exactly what it was that prompted us to do this. I don't know whether there was some Facebook argument. I'll, what was it? Do you I'll remember? tell you what it was because I actually went back and looked um, for some evidence of this. You, okay. you had said um, you'll never convince anybody of your viewpoint and there's no point in trying. And I said, disagree. And I'm never going to stop trying. Uh, it may not be a hundred percent impossible, but maybe like 99.8%. Right. Okay. So I actually went back because I had a specific comment in mind when I was saying that. Mm -hmm. And it was 
right after Bernie Sanders had dropped out of the um, 2020 race, mm-hmm. you know, Joe Biden was the the candidate of choice and Bernie dropped out. Mm-hmm. And I may, you know, having been very supportive of him and, and cheering him on, you know, I was understandably heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And so I just made a post on Facebook that said, what's the point? And it led to a bunch of comments of, you know, the Supreme Court. And, you know, I think you even jumped in with like, I agree with that and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But there was a girl who I went to high school with and, you know, we were never um, super close or hung out like outside of school, but we're Facebook friends. And she said, I should pull it up because I emailed it to myself, but it was basically just like, I know how you heartbroken you must feel, but you shouldn't stop, you know, because you kept saying things, you showed me a different perspective. And I I really like, basically just like, because you said things, I learned a different perspective. Mm. And so it was only one time. And, and since then, anytime I've engaged in an online debate, first of all, I never resort to name calling or anything. You know, I try to, sometimes my emotions get the better of me, but like, I really try to stay on topic with facts. And even though my goal is never to convince the person I'm debating, I kind of already assume they're a lost cause, but I know that there are other people reading that exchange and they're not saying anything, but they're reading it. And if there's never a counter perspective that is offered, if they've never thought of it themselves, they may never hear that perspective. And so her telling me that, I know she was reading this stuff, even though she wasn't participating in it. And when she said that, that was the confirmation. And so... Now it's like, I just, when, when I feel there is another perspective to be offered, I will defend it, but I won't engage in an argument. You Mm. know what I mean? Yeah. I think my, I want to clarify. I think my, I should go back and clarify it. I was, I have, I personally have a real hard time engaging with people on a comment thread because I have this, I don't know whether it's just, I'm a control freak, but the idea that we could have this conversation here but that all 3,000 of my Facebook friends were listening and could just open a screen, say something crazy, and then leave and go take a crap or go to the store and not have to engage with it. To me, that like the amount of work it takes me to get nuance in the conversation is like exponentially more difficult than it is in oh, person. And so unquestionable. I, and I unquestionable. Just, like, and that's the key word is nuance. Like no, mm-hmm. very few people leave room for nuance. So when you, yeah, when you decide to jump into a, especially an online debate, you spend all this time typing out long paragraphs and then like, they'll come back with one ignorant comment and then you spend more time typing out this, you, you just run out of time for right. nuance when you're arguing with people it's, who refuse to see it. It's you know? nice to be able to like have all these facts and you spend all this time and then all somebody has to say is like libtard, you know, and, yeah. you're like, uh, you know? and so I've started taking the tact. Um, I, I still have weak moments. You know, there's a, there's a friend of mine from the steel band community who is, who um, um, there's a big thread of conspiracy theories in the, in the, at least in the community I run in um, a lot around vaccines and a lot of it is not unfounded. I think historically the Tuskegee Airmen, like there's, there's things you can look back to in the way that yeah. that colored populations have been dealt with from the medical community, but yeah. he was posting all this stuff. And so I just chimed in and I was just like, why am I doing this? You know, like I shouldn't, you know, he's my buddy. Like I love him to death. He just thinks Bill Gates is trying to inject microchips <laughs> in us. You know, like I don't, that's not, a deal breaker for me with a, with a person. So I kind of backed off, but I've started taking the tack of like, do you want to come on my podcast and talk about it? I'm not going to argue with you, Hannah, the number of people who have no problem just puking out like, 
bullshit troll stuff who then when I say you want to come on my podcast, they're like, I don't like the sound of my voice. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, really? Okay, cool. That's all I had. That's and then convenient excuse. the comment thread shuts down. I'm like, oh, I see. You don't actually want to have to own the things you're saying with your face yeah. and your actual human voice. Yeah. And that's telling. And so I that also tells me what comments I should actually care about. And so it's, it's been a helpful tact and, and, uh, but anyway, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Hannah. It, it, oh, when man. somebody says yes to that, that question, when I ask about, do you want to just come on and talk about this thing that we probably don't agree on? I always yeah. have this spike of anxiety, but then I know that <laughs> I'm going to, I know I'm able to work through that anxiety with the person way quicker than if I, you, you, you and I are trying to have it out over Facebook, you know, or on oh, messenger yeah. or something. So well, and here, here's the other thing. I'm not an expert on anything. Like when it comes to politics, I'm not an expert, you know, I'm just somebody and what I consider an average American kind of consuming this stuff like anybody. I think maybe I consume it a little bit more than a typical person just based on conversations with friends and whatnot, but I know very little about political science and, and, you know, the legislative process, but I, you know, if we are a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people, the way I feel about these things does matter. And when I feel like, you know, I hear something that doesn't sit right with me, you know, I I want to research and find out. But like, yeah, you talk about like getting into a conversation with somebody on a specific topic. If they start asking for numbers and figures and where'd you hear that? Like, I, I get nervous too, because I'm not an expert, but like you, you build up this knowledge base over the years. And like, you know, I might not remember what the specific number was and who wrote that article, but it stuck with me mm. as a, a talking point to defend this viewpoint. Yeah. But yeah, if somebody would be like, where'd you read that? And I'd be like, I don't know. It was like somewhere four years ago. So like, yeah, I, but, it's, yeah. it's tricky. I, the, it's after I posted that I, I, uh, I owe Adam, I owe Adam Pearson an apology because he then posted something about the Browns. I think two of their, two of their, uh, their coach and one of their wide receivers or something got COVID and they were out for yeah. this playoff game and thank God they won. I yeah. feel like I owe him a little bit less of an apology, but, but <laughs> I, I sort of trolled him a little bit on some comment about being gutted as a Browns fan. And I'm like, gutted as a Browns fan. This is literally what we do. Like, <laughs> like, are you kidding me? And I, and it pissed him off. And I, I was like, Oh my God, I can't even, I can't even troll right about the Browns. Like, I think this is my sign. I just need to like, you know, back off. I owe Adam an apology and it's you fine. Take your battles yeah, and yeah, you, know. you, you, you apologize when necessary. Maybe in yeah, 2021, it's, 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 stay away from the Browns, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, it's a shame to lose a friend over any sort of debate, uh, especially a Browns debate, but like, even a political debate, you yeah. know, you don't want to feel like you're so far apart from your friends on certain issues, but you might be, but is it worth losing a friend? Some things maybe, but other things no. And you just got to like feel that yourself. Like, is this a friendship I want to maintain? Because does this particular belief make that not worth it? Maybe not. Maybe so. I don't know. Well, Hannah, this is awesome. I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, my policy is that anybody's welcome back on anytime. If you have a, if you and Mallory release a new record, you want to come out and talk about it. If there's some other thing I say on Facebook about anything and you, you want to, if rather than say that you don't agree with me on Facebook, all you have to say is like, I want to come back on the podcast. And that's it. That's a, that's a cue for me that I've, that I've shit the bed a little bit on something I said. So, um, well, uh, is there a website or where can folks check out Kodachrome babies? And, and actually wouldn't, would you mind given the information for the citizens for racial justice as well? Oh yeah. So, so uh, Kodachrome babies is very simple. Kodachrome babies.com. Uh, Kodachrome, like the Kodak film, mm-hmm. if you need help spelling it, we also are on Facebook, 
Kodachrome Babies. And yeah, the Citizens for Racial Justice and Reform, Tuscarawas County. If you type that into Facebook, we're only on Facebook. Okay. We don't really have a website or anything else. So okay. that's the easiest way to find it. Um, but yeah, I mean, a quick Google search on any of those things, um, <laughs> you should be able to find it. I will I will post these with uh, links with the podcast when it goes up. Um, Hannah, thank you so much. Uh, tell your, tell your uh, is it your husband or your boyfriend? Boyfriend. Tell your boyfriend congrats on the John Deere sales. Uh, y'all, y'all, y'all go out and party tonight. Pay, put, right. Live it up as a celebration. And please stay safe and healthy. And tell Dover I said hello, okay? All right. And don't forget to wear your mask. Indeed, wear a mask. Thanks, Hannah. Take it easy. <laughs> Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check him out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.